William Wallace, the great man's man's movie. I don't know about you, but it's one of my uh, one of my uh, top movies. Braveheart. William Wallace, a person in the a Scottish man in the 13th century, leads his people, his countrymen. He's not a royal man. He's not a a stately man. He's not an educated man. He is just a simple man who saw something an injustice happening in the land and led something that, that, that could be stopped, something that should be stopped, and leads his people. Again, I, I show you that clip to show you, to inspire you, that it is not take royal blood. It is not take the king's palace. It is not take great wealth to lead a movement, to hear the vision, to have a burden from God, to lead and to lead into change. It takes a person who has a intent heart, who can hear and respond, as, again, modeled in the movie, but also modeled in a man like Nehemiah. As we started a study a couple of weeks ago in Nehemiah and just trying to understand him. But th- this, this has been modeled throughout. And the whole idea of having a dream, having a, a vision, having something that can become reality. See, so many of our dreams become fantasies and not reality. Every child wants to fly. Every child imagines themselves flying. Every child jumps from a trampoline, from a, from a tree house, thinking that one day he might be able to fly. But it was the brothers of Orville and Wilbur in 1903 on the outer banks of, of North Carolina when they took this homemade, crafted plane, if you will, for lack of a better word, and flew 120 feet. And from that point forward, we've never stopped. Recently traveling internationally, that literally that came to my mind. I thought, would the Wright brothers have ever imagined JFK? Would they ever ima- imagine DFW or anything of, of the sort? That they would have, in, in a century's time, less than a century, if you will, that they would see such a, such an impact. You know, visions, dreams, burdens, passions, they don't become reality unless there's great commitment to them, enduring commitment to them, persevering commitment to them. Even a divine calling doesn't happen in us, in you, in this day, in this hour, simply because. It takes the obedience, it takes the willingness of us to be able to go the distance. Nehemiah. Again, find it in your Bibles, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament there. Kind of about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. Chapter 2 is where we'll be. But in chapter 1, we just broke that down over the course of two weeks. And we looked at that birthing process of a vision. And how it takes time. And how it starts with this burden. And how it moves to formation. And that formation may take, you know, weeks, may take months, may take years for Nehemiah, it was about five or six months that he did very little other than maintain the course and deep, deep, deep prayer. And as you see that played out in him, I think we can learn a lot from, from that. Lori and I spent a year and a half praying about whether or not it was really God's will to move back from Africa and to start Grace Point Church. It took a year and a half because we were happy, we were content, we were seeing success on our on our scorecards uh, for where we were, but it was a movement, it was a challenge, it was a burden that we kept becoming and becoming, and then here we are today. But it didn't happen again. 
just instantaneous. It happened over time. Joseph had to spend time in an Egyptian dungeon before he ever made it to the palace of Pharaoh to ultimately become an avenue of of saving his own people, the people of Israel. It was 15 years after Samuel first anointed king to be King David. David lived in, in, in caves. David ran for his life. Yet 15 years it took him before he actually assumed the throne of the nation of Israel and become one of the greatest, if not the greatest king ever for Israel. But 15 years in the making. You think about Moses when he saw the injustice of his own people and he stood up and in a bit of anger ends up having to run for his life from Pharaoh and spends 40 years in the wilderness taking care of sheep. All that time him remembering and realizing the injustice that is being done to his own people. Only to have God call him at the age of 80 to be a part of something that he could do and he should do. And it was a part of that calling that you see coming up in, uh, in Nehemiah, whether it's, whether it's five months or it's a year and a half or it's 40 years. What's God calling you to? What is he calling you to? Why does he let you live? Why has he given you breath? What's he calling you to? Why are you here? Nehemiah began again in this kind of un, unexpected kind of way, began to be burdened and shaped for, for his people back home, that there was injustice and it was not right, and he is living in the palace, and he is taking care of the king, and he is taking care of the wine, and he is living the high life, but injustice is going on back home. And how and where and how does he fit into the equation? Again, that five-month period. It finally came a day. When the button had to be pushed, when the trigger had to be pulled, when it was something that had to be done. And it was not in some planned kind of way. It was not in some programmed kind of way. It was not as if he set an appointment with the king and said, I've got to talk with you about something personal. It was in the midst of his everyday duties. Now, I want you to notice that. That just because he had a burden, just because he had this calling that was working up inside of him, he didn't stop what he was doing. I've seen people do that. Like they feel this direction, they just knee-jerk reaction and go the other way real quickly and hastily and end up regretting it typically. No, he continued to be a cupbearer to the king. He stayed right where he was. He kept doing right what he was doing. He just kept praying and waiting for God. And in that waiting, God gave him an opportunity. As he was standing before the king one day, King Artaxerxes serving wine, the king noticed him, noticed him in, a, in, in, a, in an unhealthy way. See, he, had, he was close to the king. You could tell that just in this text. They were personal enough that when Nehemiah looked at the king and the king looked at Nehemiah, there was a close enough jail there going on that the king, King Artaxerxes, knew that something wasn't right with Nehemiah. So he brings it up to him. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1, and you can, you can see it. Again, in the month of Nicaea. Now, again, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we talk about the month of Chislev. That, that's, again, about a five- to six-month period of time separating the two. In the month of Nicaean, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine. Again, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah. Uh, so he is, uh, he is writing here, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had been 
sad in his presence. Let me just again push pause for a second and say, there's one thing about it when God begins to birth a vision in you, begins to, begins to alter your state of thinking and planning, is that you're not the same person. It will affect you at the core. You will emote differently. You will feel, think, process life differently. He's sitting here going about his tasks, serving the wine all along, pretending not to be sad, but yet it's coming out of him. Ever clearly, verse 2, And the king said to, to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? So he had a close enough relationship with him. He didn't see fever. He wasn't nauseous. He didn't have some disease. He knew he wasn't sick. This is what the king said. This is nothing but the sadness of the heart. That's the diagnosis of the king. This is the sadness of the heart. And then it goes on to say a very troubling statement in the last part of verse 2. Then I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. Now I just, I, I just really want to emphasize something here. When God begins to call and God begins to burden and God begins to move in you and you, you begin to feel this earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting, worldview-shifting work of God inside of you and you don't know what you're going to do. Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's political. Maybe it's moral. Maybe it's ethical. Maybe it's something like that. He begins to shake you. And he begins to move you that you could do something and you should do something. Then all of a sudden, you've been praying about it. God's been forming this in, your, in you that, hey, I need to go back to my motherland. I need to fix the walls. I need to prepare the gates. But what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? What, where are the resources going to come from? And, all that. and you have this moment and the king, you don't know when it's going to come. You don't know when you're going to get the call. You don't know when you're going to get the, the, the summons. You don't know. And the king asks you what's wrong. Notice what happens. He goes from being sad to being fearful. And this is what I want to say to you, and I don't want any one of you to miss this today. So many visions die at the threshold of fear. They don't ever go any further. You can be sad and depressed, burdened, convicted. You can see all of that, all those emotions, all that in there. But all of a sudden you come to fear and you don't move. You're frozen. And you're afraid to go forward. And you don't know what's ahead. And, you don't, you know, and, and so you just stop. Nehemiah is at a threshold. Is he going to go through? Is he going to tighten up his lips? Is he going to give an excuse? I just really don't feel well. Is he going to play all this out? What's he going to do? Because the opportunity now is for him for the first time ever, to cast the vision. And you, I'll say this, as, as we go through this process, you see in chapter 2, opportunities for Nehemiah to cast his vision. Three different opportunities that he's going to have to deal with casting his vision. And the first one is to the king. And the first one, we have to kind of have to wear different hats depending on who we're talking to. And if you're talking to a provider, such as a king, you need to be, you need to have inspiration about you. And here he is with the king, and the king's saying, why are you sad? And all of a sudden he faces this fear. Is he going to go forward? Is he going to share? Because what a king is, a king is what we call in missiology a gatekeeper. Now, you may have never heard the term gatekeeper, so let me just tell you from a missiological point of view. It is, a gatekeeper is the person who keeps the missionary out. 
or lets the missionaries in. And you, anytime you go into a village, anytime you go into a community, you've got to figure out in the social settings who are the gatekeepers, who are the ones who allow you in. Your boss may be a gatekeeper, your parents may be a gatekeeper, your spouse may be a gatekeeper. Now, gatekeepers aren't bad people, but they're just people that you've got to have on board. If you don't have a gatekeeper on board with you, then you could be, you know, just spinning your wheels for a really, really long time. You need gatekeepers on board. When we go to Mali every year, or any time we go to West Africa, this little village, there's this little old man who's about 90 years old and probably weighs a, a, a buck soaking wet. I mean, that's it. I mean, he and he's this shriveled up man, but he's a loving man, and we go to him every time, and the first thing we do when we get there, we take him cola nuts. And we, we sit down with him, and we greet him, and we, and we pray with him, and, and he invites us back, and we, we share stories with him. And we love this man. This man loves us. And for the first time, after 20-something trips this past time, he shared something with us that I've never heard him share any other trip. He said, he says, thank you for every time you come, you come and you greet me. You come and you bring me cola nuts. And I am going to tell everyone in the village that they need to come to you and listen to your stories about Jesus. What happened in that moment? That gatekeeper, the chief, just said, this village belongs to you. Here's the keys to the village. I'm telling everybody to listen to your story. What did we do? We just simply entered into his life and was a moment, a bit of inspiration to him. If you've got a burden... If God is working in you to start a Bible study on the job, in the school, wherever it is, and God is calling you up to do that, you need to figure out who the gatekeeper is. It's not brown-nosing, smoozing, or whatever else, but you've got to be able to go to that person and cast the vision to them. Put it in such a way that they're going to see that it could happen and it should happen. Again, that's what our vision is. A could and a should and they can be a part of it and they can help make it happen and this would be benefit the company and this would benefit the school and we would we could do this and this is how we could do it you've got to know who the gatekeeper is and with that person you become a point of inspiration if it's to start a career if it's to launch a business if it's to do something new if it's to move houses you may have to go to your spouse now this is really tough when you've got to go to your spouse and you've got to, because they're a provider, they're, in the, they're going to be a part of the equation, they're going to be a part of the mix, you've got to go to your spouse and cast the vision for what you see should and could happen. So, think about that for just a moment. Because what we do when we are casting our vision is we've got to inspire the heart. We've got to inspire them. How do we do that? How do we, You see this in Nehemiah whenever he's with the king. And he starts casting out the vision. Now, what I've done, and I've studied this several times over the course of several years, but I love Nehemiah and just how he slowly, methodically does this in chapter 2. And I, I want to call him checklist, if you will. If you've got a vision, whether it's in the home or it's outside the home, it's in the company or it's out in the politics or it's in the school, you've got a burden and a vision and God has given it to you, you need to check this checklist. And make sure you have these checklist items. Because you're going to encounter a gatekeeper that you're going to need to make sure you can answer these questions and deal with it properly. So jot them down. Number one, is the dream, is the vision written on your life? I had a pastor. I was growing up. I love the man. He 
I, I went and shared with him in 10th grade that I felt like God was calling me to the ministry. And which I knew my life growing up, and I knew that I was way underqualified in every sense of the word. How would God be calling me to the ministry? And you know what my pastor told me? He said, Mike, if you can do anything else, go do it. Literally, he said that. If you can go, if you can do anything else than get in the ministry, go do it. Now, he wasn't dogging me, and he wasn't dogging the ministry. But what he was saying, he said, Mike, if you can be content in any other thing, then go do it. But if God's in it, if God's calling you, you won't be able to do anything else. This is going to be God all over you. He's going to write it on your heart. You're going to sleep. And, you, and that's exactly what happened. Is I couldn't do anything else. I, I was called to this. Again, chapter 2, uh, verse 2. He couldn't hide it. He was sad. The king saw it. The king wanted to know. This is the sadness of the heart. What's going on here? It was written all over Nehemiah. The second thing is, is that you've got to continually, and you ask yourself this question, are you continually praying about every move and word? I mean, I'm talking now everything. You are constantly in prayer. This is something that you don't just offer up a prayer, God bless this vision, and now I'm going to go do it. This is something that you and God are in constant communication with. Because if you notice the scenario that plays out here, and let's keep going, and you ask, yeah, well, you have to ask, why was he sad? Or why, why did he become fearful? Well, here's, here's the reality. If you, if you look at verse 3, it said, I said to the king, let the king live forever. So he wasn't trying to overthrow the king. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Don't miss this. You have him sad. You have the king asking what's wrong. It's literally, you see it chronologically happening here. He says, I'm not trying to overthrow you, king. I just want to tell you, my people are suffering and horrible things are happening back home. The king said, what do you want me to do about it? And before he utters the next phrase, in the midst of that conversation, what does he do? He prays. See, praying without ceasing, praying is a lifestyle. Pray is, praying, is, praying is not an event you just do at home or around the dinner table. Prayer is a lifestyle. So even before Nehemiah said the very next phrase, he is praying. I said last week, and we're going to see this all the way through from chapter 1 to the very last words of Nehemiah, we find him praying. Here in chapter 2, we find him praying. This man did not make a move. He did not utter a word. He did not live out his life outside of being in a constant relationship with God Almighty. Now, there are some things that were playing into this because you were not, there, you were not to be depressed in front of the king. That was a no-no, okay? That was one of the reasons he might have been fearful. It was illegal to do that. second thing is that the king had already ruled on Jerusalem being rebuilt. He said, that's not going to happen. See, years before this, you've got to read the book of Ezra, but years before this, they already started rebuilding the walls. And there was a rumor that came back to the king and said, hey, if you rebuild the walls, Jerusalem will become its own nation, and they'll stop paying you taxes. King Artaxerxes himself said, that ain't going to happen. And so in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21 to 23, throw it up there. This is a copy of the letter. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made 
to cease. Now notice it didn't say ask to cease. They were made to cease. And that this city is not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Until you hear further from me, stop it, and you go stop it. And take care, uh, uh, take care that you're not slack in this matter. Why should, uh, or why should damage grow to the hurt uh, of the king? Then, when the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and his uh, associate, they went in haste to the Jews of Jerusalem, uh, at Jerusalem, and by force power, uh, uh, made them to cease. <laughs> Can you just imagine? All of a sudden they're doing this work, rebuilding these walls, and all of a sudden this herd of cavalry come in, and they just start beating you down and saying, listen, the king, our exerxes, is you're not going to rebuild this wall. Now, fast forward. All of a sudden, Nehemiah is in front of the king, and he's going to ask the king that he can go and rebuild the walls. What is the first thing he does before he even drops the, the, the big question? He stops and prays. He stops and he prays. How do you fight fear? You fight fear with prayer. Prayer is going to be the element that's going to be able to push you through, push you through those awkward moments, push you through those fear factor moments. It's going to be the thing that you're going to say, okay, God, you're in this, you're in it, okay, I'm moving forward. And what happens is even though the king has already said, we will not rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Jerusalem will not be rebuilt, we will not do this. Listen to this. When we pray, God hears and God can change. I don't care what king wants or says or has done. Notice that Proverbs 21. Read it with me. Read it out loud. Ready? The king's heart is like a channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Listen, if God is in it and you're praying about it and your spouse is saying, uh-uh, pray about it. Say, God, would you move their heart? Three years God had called Lori and I, well, excuse me, had called me to the mission field. Lori said, because we'd had our first baby, you can go, but I'm staying. For three years, all I could do was pray. Didn't force her, didn't drag her, didn't do anything, didn't say you got to go, didn't say this is of God, didn't play the God card, didn't play the submit card, didn't do any of that kind of stuff. I just to pray. And when I prayed, God began to sway her heart. Three years, she told me. I can remember it was on a Wednesday night after prayer meeting. First Baptist Church, Lake City. She told me as she leaned in the window of the car and gave me a kiss. She said, Mike, I'm ready to go. What happened? I had to pray. I had to pray. I had to pray. And over time, God swayed her heart. God can do so much through prayer. And I wonder sometimes if our fear stops us. And when God wants us to pray it through, we just don't pray. And we just don't move. So, checklist. Number one, is it written all over you? Number two, are you continually praying, praying, praying about where God may be wanting you to go? Number three, can you clearly and succinctly state your dream? Is it so clear you can state it? So, okay, so you've heard Nehemiah. You've heard King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes, what do you want me to do about it? What does Nehemiah say? Verse 5. And I, will, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, 
graves that I may rebuild them. Very clearly. The king, King Artaxerxes, I have one request. Send me back home to rebuild the wall. That's it. Not ambiguous, not fake, not undercutting him, not trying to sneak something. I just want to go visit family, give me some time off. I want to raise up a coup, you know, anything like that. He said, no, I just want to go home. And I just want to rebuild. Would you let me? Would you give me your blessing? See, the problem is sometimes we have not done the due diligence of prayer and allowing God to shape the vision and the direction of our life. And so therefore, whenever we have that opportunity to cast the vision, it's a stuttering, stammering mess. Or, or it's, it's, it's like a mist. And they say this about preaching, that if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. All right, so if it, it's not going to be very clear if it's just a mist coming out of your mouth. It needs to be a very clear calling of this is what God wants us to do. Nehemiah's rebuild a wall. Let's go rebuild a wall. That's what God wants us to do. What's God wanting you to do? Can you state it succinctly? This is it. Number four. Have you wrestled with the tough questions? Have you wrestled with the tough questions? Because verse 6, the king turns around and says, with the queen sitting right beside him, said, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? What's the scope? What's the, what's the span? What's the time period? Those are tough questions. Because he didn't know what he was getting into. He didn't know all this kind of stuff. These are tough questions. We're going to have to deal with t- tough questions. And whenever you deal with tough questions, sometimes you will have answers and sometimes you won't. And if you're casting your vision, and I, I'm married, I've been married for 21 years to the same girl, all right? And I know when I'm going into a, a vision casting moment with Lori, I better have the questions answered, all right? I better have at least thought through the questions. And that's a very key, that's a very key point. You may not have all the answers, but you better be asking the questions so that they know you're thinking it through. So that they know you really know this stuff. When Lori and I were coming back to start Grace Point, it was like, we didn't know how we were going to live. We had two months severance package is all we had. Come back and that's it. All right, two months and we had to figure it out. We had to figure it out. I was going to stock shelves at Walmart at night. I was going to drive a school bus during the day. And I was going to sleep somewhere between school routes and somehow prepare a message in there and plan a church. She was going to go back and, and, and teach in the school because she had an education degree. So that's how we were going to, we, that's how, that was our plan. There's a lot of times we don't know the answers to the questions, but are you ready? Are you asking the tough questions? Proverbs 22.3 out of the Living Bible says this, a prudent man foresees difficulties, the difficulties ahead and prepares for them. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. So if you've got a vision, if God's directing you, if God's leading you, be asking and answering the tough questions. Don't be one of the simpletons out there. Number five, does your ministry, or do you have a ministry or business plan? If it's a, starting a business, start a business. If it's a ministry plan, uh, then start a, if it's a nonprofit, a nonprofit, are, are you really coming together with a big plan here? You really, if you've taken the time and you prayed it through and sought God in it and did your research and, and sought counsel, and, and you've done all of that, then you're going to have something coming together, some sticky elements 
You're going to have a plan coming together. How is this? How are we going to pay the bills? How, what are we going to do? Where's that going to come from? You've got to ask this question. You notice here, and I'm not going to read it all, but you'll notice that he said, I, I need letters from you, king. I need, I need supplies from you. I need beams. I need, we're going to have gates. And he had a plan. He didn't go to the king without a plan. You don't go to your providers of your vision without a plan. Have your plan. Have it in place. Be ready to answer the tough questions. Have a clear and succinct statement. Be ready to get it out there in such a clear and compelling manner. Nehemiah does this to the king. But not only will you have opportunity to cast your vision to providers, whether you're an entrepreneur and you need resources, or you're an educator and you have a new idea, or, or you're whatever it is out there, you'll also have You'll also need partners. You're going to need partners, people to work with you, work along beside you. For that, you're going to have to approach it as a catalyst. See, anything big that God wants to do through you, it's going to be bigger than you. All right? If it's just a small something, nothing, you're going to have other buy-in. You're going to have other people. I love the Chinese proverb that says, behind an able man are always other able men. Einstein, the great scientist, inventor, entrepreneurial mind, could, you know, limitless in his abilities to create something out of nothing. But yet, even in his life, he says many times a day, I realize how much my own outer and inner life is built upon the labors of fellow men, both living and dead, and how earnestly I must exert myself in order to give in return as much as I've received. See, great people are not great in and unto themselves. They're great because they were with other people. And other people that helped them become something, helped the dream become a reality. One is too small a number, John Maxwell says, to achieve greatness. If you look at chapter 2, verse 11, you find Nehemiah journeying back to Jerusalem. Now, he's been given permission by the king. He's got the letters. He's got the permission. He's all in place. And now in verse 11, he says, And I went to Jerusalem. I was there for three days. And then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. Now notice this next statement that he makes, because I want to say something about it. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart, all right, into my heart to do in Jerusalem. Let's come back and talk about that in a moment. Because he's going to say it again here in a little bit. There, there was, a, there was, a, there was uh, no animal with me except the one that I rode on. He went to the valley gate, the dragon gate, the dung gate. And then he goes on, verse 14, and he went down to the fountain gate and the king's pool gate. It got so bad that he couldn't even ride the animal that he was on because there was so much rubble and trash. Then verse 14, verse 15, Then I went up the night in the valley and the wall, uh, the wall, and he turned back and entered the valley gate. And so he returned. And the officials did not know where he had gone and what he was doing. Listen to this again. And he had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Let me just say this about vision casting. There is a time to cast the vision, and there's a time to shut up. And it's not just every, you tell everybody all the time. There are times, there are scopes, there's sequence, there's a process that you need to go through. And because what you've got to do with a vision, with getting partners on board, you don't want to say, well, you know, I got, I got this idea, and we might be able to do something like this, but I don't know. What do you think? You're not going to inspire anybody on that. What you got to do is you got to go with fire in your bones and say, this has got to be done. You, you, you see the walls? 
Do you see how we can be, be assaulted? Do you see how we can be attacked? He had to get a full scope. He went himself. He touched. He walked. He felt all the gates. He went around. And then, not until then, and then he comes back, verse 17, and then he said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and the gates are burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that it may no longer suffer derision. And I told them, and the hand of my God has been upon uh, uh, me for good and that the words of the king had spoken to me and they said let us <laughs> let us rise up and build what a noble idea but here's what had to happen there had to be a time there had to be a way there had to be an environment and it was in the setting of these broken down walls that Nehemiah rises up like William Wallace and says listen I may be a commoner but let's re build these walls it could and it should happen now i i just I, I get chills when i think about that because i think that there was such a timing element there that when he unloaded it on his partners he had to be a catalyst remember this is what you are at this point and notice this he presented the need to them he said jerusalem lies in, in ruins he goes on and he says he modeled the way for them he said hey let us rebuild See, Nehemiah included himself in the equation. Let us rebuild. He, got, he incorporates God into it. He said, listen. Now, I know, listen, let me say this. I know everybody incorporates God into it. I mean, every presidential candidate that's ever run. I mean, this year in the Republican Party, the, most people who have backed out are the ones who say God called them to, to run for the president. So I know we can common times throw God into our, into our equation. But listen, if God's in it, his hand will be all over you. God is in it, He will be with you through it. In fact, you find a couple of times in this one chapter, verse 8 and other places where He says God's hand is upon them. But He also, listen to this, very important, He calls for commitment. He called for commitment. He said, let's build. And they said, let's build. When we started Grace Point, I met with family after family after family. And I, every time I met with them, I'd look at them, I'd either be in their home, we'd be out to eat, I'd be sitting over coffee, and I'd say this, are you ready? You want to be a part? Want to be a part of this? Again, we had nothing, we had no promise, we had no building, we had no nothing. And yeah, I said, are you ready? You want to be a part? And most of the people said no. A handful of people said yes. I said, let's do it. We can do it, let's do it. See, make no small plans, for they have not the power to stir the souls of man. I love that statement. William Church, Winston Churchill led England probably in its darkest hours during World War II, prior to World War II. And in fact, you read some of his speeches, just an amazing speech writer. One guy even said, no speech has ever united the nation more than the speech whenever he ended with the call to commitment from the people of England. And he said, listen, this will mean nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Let me say to you at Grace Point Church, we've just finished our first decade. We are moving into the future. And we've got a challenge. We're expanding our campus because guess what? We're still closing classrooms. We're still growing as a church. We've got to have more space. You know, we've got this big, hairy, audacious goal that we want to see an unreached people group in West Africa called the bomber people. We want to see them reach for Christ in the next decade. 
An entire UPG, unreached people group, turned around to faith in Christ. A sustainable movement of God. Just be beautiful. We want to see all the orphans of northwest Arkansas's life touched and blessed in a very clear way. We want to see homes restored. That kind of hairy, audacious goals, guess what? It's going to require blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Anybody ready to join? That's what it calls for when you call for a vision. Who are you inspiring? Who are you calling on? What What are you rallying people around to be a part of? Let me give you one last approach that you're going to have to deal with, and that's the pessimist out there. You'll deal with pessimists. And you have to be a protector at this point. In, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 9 and following, uh, he talks about having to cross the river, needing a letter, and, and then when he crosses the river, Samballot and Tobiah of Hornite uh, and, and Tobiah the Ammonite heard of them, and they were very upset because they were there to help the people, of uh, the Hebrew people. And then you skip on over to, to verse 19 and 20, and, and it says that Sanballat and Tobiah, and listen, we're going to hear about Sanballat and Tobiah till the end of the book. And then just get this into your, into your mind. When you start moving with God, you're going to have Sanballats and Tobias in your life. Get ready for that. No way about it. Sambalat and Tobiah step up to the plate. They start nagging. They jeered us and they despised us. And they started ridiculing us by saying, what things are you doing? And you're rebelling against the king. So they're starting all these rumors and they're just doing all this stuff. What does Nehemiah do? Oh, no, 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 no. Does he run? Does he hide? Does he do whatever? What does he do? Verse 20, and the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build, but you will have no portion or right to claim. In Jerusalem. Let me just say this to you, my friends. As you rise up and as you take the mantle, as you take the calling of God, as He leads you, it's going to be a noble work. It's going to be a great work. It's going to be an impactful work. You may be the leader or you may just go along and be with them. You may, you, but as God calls you, do it. Whatever He's calling you to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, Paul said it like this, I will stay here in Ephesus. There's real opportunity here. And great while, a worthwhile work. Isn't that a great statement? There's great opportunity here. There's upside. There's potential. And there's a worthwhile work. But notice the last statement. What does it say? Even though there are many opponents. See, whenever you make that call, whenever you start casting that vision, you're going to start seeing who your real friends are. You're going to start seeing who your real enemies are. And you're going to start seeing it all separate out. Because opportunity only allows also opponents to rise up. I like what Erwin McManus said. He said, our capacity to run free is related to our commitment to stand firm. Our capacity to run free is related to our commitment to stand firm. You know, I love this book. I've been studying it for years. I've been studying it, and I've gone back in, in, this, in this process, and I've looked back 12 years ago at notes, at my journals that I've been taking. And to me, again, this may not mean much to you, but to me, it has inspired me afresh and anew. Because what was happening 12 years ago in Mike McDaniel's life 
is that he was praying about maybe coming back to America and maybe somewhere, Seattle, Boston, Northwest Arkansas, starting a church. We were thinking about it. We felt like it should happen. We felt like it could happen, but we didn't know how it would happen. So we just prayed about it. And I think about Nehemiah, how God stepped into his life and he moved him from being a bartender to a builder. God, God's going to move in your life. And I just love it that, that Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it more abundantly. How is he stretching you? How is he trying to grow your life? What's he trying to do in this season of your life? I hope you'll be ready for it because I'll tell you right now, 12 years back, fast forward 12 years to today. You're sitting in the midst of a vision that God gave Lori and I. And you're part of a work and a movement of God that is far bigger than Lori and I. And I, I just want you to say this from one visionary to another. From one person who wants to follow God to another. Listen. Pray. And obey. Let's pray together. Father God, how are you rumbling in our midst? How are you stirring in our midst? Do a work in us and help us to just lay it all before you. Hold back nothing. Hold on to nothing. But lay it all before you now. Lord, we ask your richest blessing. We ask your voice to be clear. We ask for obedience in our own hearts and minds. In Jesus' name.